Quite an adventure, isn't it? Quite an adventure. As I've walked around the land the last couple of days, I have been so struck by the stillness. And I'm just looking at the hills, and uh, sometimes I've just stood and felt the stillness all around us. And on more than one occasion, there was some yogi standing there, maybe doing the same thing. One never knows what's in the mind of a yogi. (laughs) But maybe. (laughs) And likewise, here in the hall, the hall has become so still, and at sometimes it's palpably still. You can feel the stillness, and there's a sweetness to that stillness, to my perception at least. And tonight, what I'd like us to do is to explore this mystery of the stillness. What is this stillness? What do we mean? What is its role in our life? So, to start with, a little quote from the Buddha in terms of stillness. As in the ocean's midmost depth, no wave is born, but all is still. As in the ocean's midmost depth, no wave is born, but all is still. So let the practitioners be still, be motionless, and nowhere should they swell. So let the practitioners be still, be motionless, and nowhere should they swell. This call for stillness. What does stillness mean to you? And I'd like to hear from some of you just now. So when you hear that word stillness, what comes to mind for you? Someone start us. Spacious. Spacious. Thank you. Potential. Potential. Someone else. Quiet. Quiet. Someone else. Peaceful heart. Peaceful heart. One last one, yes, in the back. Sacred. Sacred. So the stillness. What is the stillness? The mystery of it. This is by the wonderful poet Mira. It's called A Great Yogi. In my travels... I spent time with a great yogi. Once he said to me, become so still you hear the blood flowing through your veins. One night, as I sat in quiet, I seemed on the verge of entering a world inside so vast. I know it is the source of all of us. Become so still you hear the blood flowing through your veins. Entering into this vast world through stillness. 
mysterious. There's external stillness, things being still around you. There is emotional stillness, where the emotions neither want something nor want to get rid of something. This emotional stillness. And then there is the stillness of the mind itself. The stillness that we refer to as emptiness. Where the mind is empty of any kind of activity. No doing. No creation in its purity. This pure stillness, this pure emptiness. No subject, no object. Just this emptiness. Everything still. Totally still. Here's Ajahn Chah talking about stillness. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Try to be mindful, you've all been doing this, and let things take their natural course. Sometimes you've been doing that. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings like a clear forest pool. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. So this relationship of stillness to the happiness of the Buddha, quite powerful, quite powerful. So one way that we start to get some felt sense of this stillness. So not to know it conceptually, not to have our opinions about it, not to have our judgments of ourselves in relation to it, but to actually feel it as a direct experience. It's often necessary that we do it indirectly. We can uh, reflect on things that uh, point to or uh, evoke in us this kind of knowing. And the Tao Te Ching is a wonderful, wonderful way in which to do that. So to read you, this is number 11 for those of you who are so inclined. We shape clay into a pot, but it is the emptiness inside that holds what we want. We shape clay into a pot, but it is the emptiness inside that holds what we want. We hammer wood for a house, but it is the inner space that makes it livable. We hammer wood for a house, but it is the inner space that makes it livable. We work with being, but non-being is what we use. We work with being, but non-being is what we use. It's paradoxical. Can't deduct it, can't induct it. Open to the paradox of it, to the mystery of it. This mystery of the stillness. Dogen says, moon and a dewdrop, only a Buddha and a Buddha. In my experience, 
every really profound truth requires some degree of paradoxical thinking. And in order to do that, we surrender. We surrender. We stop thinking we're going to grasp it. And we open to see if it comes to us. We live with the cognitive dissonance of two statements that seem to totally contradict each other. And this is particularly true when we start to examine stillness in the context of movement. Movement is absolutely necessary for life. We know this. We know it scientifically. We know it from our own experience. If the atoms weren't moving, you wouldn't be here. So all of this movement of atoms, just the movement of your breath, the movement of your heart, moving the blood through your body. Without movement, there is no life. And yet movement is not exactly stillness. So already we enter this world of paradox. Three characteristics of movement that you can reflect on as we go through this talk. When there is movement, there is some sort of embodiment that is moving, just by definition. So there's space in which some movement is occurring. And it's located in time. Movement doesn't make sense without it. So there's, there's in an experienced way, there's movement in time and in space. And, and this is really paradoxical, the only reason movement happens is because of some sort of desire. So with an atom, the movement around the atom, the very cohesion of the atom depends on an attraction. In our own experience, we're totally dependent on gravity and that attraction, the electromagnetic field. We're dependent on there being attraction, and attraction is always some form of desire. So here we are. But where, then, is the still point? It's at the end of the inhale. Sometimes you become aware of that, and other times don't feel it at all. But a number of times in the sitting, you may be aware there's this point when the inhale finishes and nothing happens for a moment. And then the exhale starts. And likewise, at the end of the exhale, there's the still point. Sometimes uh, I a yogi will come in and say, you know, I can really follow my breath very well when it's moving, but what do you do at that point when it stops moving between the inhale and the exhale? And we have uh, techniques we give people if that's a problem for them, but it's actually such a rich point to take that still point at the end of the breath as your object of meditation. Likewise, the waves in the ocean, when they come in, there's this movement in. And then there's just this moment. It's very brief, but there's no longer a movement in, but there's not quite a movement out. This wonderful still point. At the end of a music piece, so when you've been at the symphony, and it's some wonderful piece, and it all comes to this great crescendo, and there's absolute silence in the hall. In one sense, 
the music is still going on. And yet, it's totally still. And then the applause breaks out. That's such a magical moment because that's a moment in the stillness. Can happen to you in lovemaking at times where there's this stillness, this point where there is just stillness at the end. In a more mundane way, in a yoga pose, many of you are, are yoga practitioners. If you're doing yoga with a certain kind of a, a meditative attitude towards it, there comes a point in the pose where you can actually access the stillness in that pose. Uh, for uh, myself, when I felt that, it changed how I was practicing yoga. This was many decades ago now. Likewise, you can have a moment of grace in your life where somehow you just feel like, oh. And in that, before a euphoria, there's just stillness for a moment. So as we open to this, what is it we are opening to? This is from T.S. Eliot. And I'm starting in the middle of a phrase here. The light is still at the still point of the turning world. Words move, music moves, only in time. But that which is only living can only die. Words, after speech, reach into the silence. So this paradoxical relationship Because everything that is moving comes to stillness. Everything that is alive is moving. And everything that is alive dies and comes into this stillness. So this relationship between the two, a little bit more, a little further on. Not the stillness of the violin while the note lasts. Not that only but the coexistence, or say that the end precedes the beginning, and the end and the beginning were always there, before the beginning and after the end, and all is always now. Some of you may have felt this at times in your meditation here on another retreat, where this whole idea of beginning and end just falls away. And there's a different order of knowing. And that order of knowing is in the now, in this very moment. And in this very moment, there is stillness. So just now, notice. And again, just notice. The stillness is always present even in the midst of the movement. It's just that we seldom notice it. So, this inference, this, uh, this direct experience, the felt experience of the stillness, again from Eliot. At the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is. 
but neither arrest nor movement, and do not call it fixity, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline, except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. Except for the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. So paradoxical, huh? So paradoxical. Like the clay jar, it's the emptiness that makes it part of our life. Like the house, it's the space that gives it life, that we can relate to it. And yet we don't think about the space so much. We think about building the house, fixing the house. Not always so careful about appreciating the space. So this sense of the still point, it's not additive. It doesn't add anything. But it provides the container. The stillness provides the container for the dance to happen, for movement to happen. This still point is not of time, but yet it's there in time, just as we saw a moment ago in our own observation. Joseph Goldstein, when he talks about this, he likes to uh, sometimes use the uh, reference to the zero point in uh, our numerical system. Zero is neither plus something nor minus anything. It doesn't really have that kind of characteristic. It's empty. It's not a plus one or two or three or minus one, two or three. It's empty. And yet, without it, there's no reference point. There's no way that, it, that the whole structure of our mathematical system and of our universe, which has got a kind of mathematical basis, makes any sense. It's not comprehensible. So this zero point, it's empty. When you add zero, you don't add anything. If you subtract zero, you don't take anything away. And yet, without it, you would be lost. So much for your checkbooks. So much for computers, even. So, in this emptiness that's there in the still point, in its purest of pure forms, at least within my experience and understanding, there is literally this emptiness. There's no plus and no minus. There's no subject. There's no object. There's not any object in that emptiness itself of pure awareness. It's just awareness. Empty of all things. No object. But there's no subject either that's saying, oh, this is empty. There's no subject or object. And yet there is a kind of awareness. When do we know it? When we come out of that space. So... Sometimes in the meditation experience, this is known directly. In our meditation, we can feel the presence of this even if we don't know it directly. In its lived-out form, I'm reminded of uh, 
Ramana Maharshi's statement, when I see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I see that I am everything, that is love. My life flows like a river between these two. The movement and the emptiness. The movement and the emptiness. Nothing and love. Flowing between. All arising in this stillness. Again from the Tao. In the beginning was the Tao. All things issue from it. All things return to it. If you close your mind in judgments and traffic with desires, your heart will be troubled. If you keep your mind from judging and aren't led by the senses, your heart will find peace. The stillness, it's our reference point. It frees us, but we don't have to abandon life. The great Tao flows everywhere. All things are born from it. Yet it doesn't create them. It pours itself into its work, yet it makes no claim. Since all things vanish into it, and it alone endures, it can be called great. It isn't aware of its greatness. This is truly great. The paradox of this still point. Not something we possess. Not something that the ego is ever going to control or possess. But it's there. It's there. It references us. It grounds us in this very moment. It is the groundless ground. When Jack was talking the other night about those moments of nibbana, those moments when we, when we get this release, this respite from the pressure of our daily life, of our wanting, our fears, our anxiety, that moment is characterized by a stillness. We may not notice it, but it is there. A kind of stillness. And so then we get to this question about what is it that bridges the stillness that is our groundless ground and this flow of our life which is so based around desire. What is it that allows these two to work together in some way? What allows the attraction? What allows the desire in your life? Your your love for your children. Your desire to take care of the earth. Your appreciation of it. All the movement, the bees to the flowers, on and on, water that flows downhill, all of these natural relationships. Without there being this kind of attraction, this kind of desire, I personally have never seen how any of it holds together. So there is a kind of eros to the universe, to our universe, that we know at least in my view. 
Sometimes eros is used in such a narrow way. But I hold it to be this largest feeling of love. So we know that with a child, a baby needs to be attracted to stimuli or the baby won't thrive and the baby will die. Likewise, if the baby isn't held and nourished, the baby will fail to thrive and will again die. So this eros lies at the basis of all things. And yet, we hear not to get caught in desire. So how do we reconcile this in our daily life? Not in some philosophy or belief, but when when you're going through the lunch line, when you're interacting with your significant other, when you're taking your place at work and in the community, or just sitting down with a meal by yourself. So this is Eliot talking about the paradox and how we resolve it. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Good dharma there, huh? Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. This eros, the baby being attracted to stimuli, you being attracted to the baby, that love. But the love itself is characterized by this stillness, pure love, Buddha nature, bodhicitta, only the cause and end of movement. Do you start to feel the paradox of this? Love itself is movement, desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. The unmoved is the source of all movement, says the Tao. Where we find our felt sense of this resolve between stillness and movement, between freedom and desire, is in this present moment, the sacred nowness of this present moment. Chogram Trumpa referred to it as the fourth moment. So it's, it's not the past, it's not the future, it's not ordinary present moment. It's this fourth moment, in his words. I call it the fourth time. It's ordinary this moment, but infused with mindfulness infused with this embodied intention. This fourth moment, just now. So again, just feel it. When we study the Satipatthana, when we practice 
the four foundations of mindfulness. We develop a kind of presence that's a presence that's awareness of what's happening, but it's also a kind of presence that is just present. It's in the now. We are present for what's unfolding and we bring our presence to it. You've already felt this on this retreat. Maybe when you walked outside, maybe when you saw someone in the hall struggling and your heart totally opened to that person struggling. Or maybe in a moment of quiet or when we were doing the spaciousness practice this morning. Or when we were seeing the dukkha. Wow, this is dukkha. Ah, and we just opened. We weren't just, oh yeah, I'm suffering now. We knew this profoundness of, yeah, this is really dukkha. The first noble truth is noble. The first noble truth is a noble truth. Why? Why isn't it just that, oh, there's one lousy truth of life and three great noble truths? (laughs) It's because when we can be fully present with the difficult, the stressful, the anxious, the disappointing, when we can be truly present for that, it is noble. It is noble. We're in that fourth moment. That fourth moment. We're both in time, but not limited by time. There's a freedom in it. Even just at that ability to be present. It's the beginning of our journey. We have become one of the noble ones in that moment. We'll lose it, and we'll lose it again and again. And our practice is just refinding it, rediscovering it again and again. And then over time, we lose it less frequently, for less length of time. And it's not so We're not so lost. We're only sort of lost. We grow. We develop. We mature spiritually. To reconcile the stillness and movement, you don't have to be perfect. You don't have to become perfect. You simply are grounded in your intent. You become embodied in your intent to be present you are willing to be with the truth of this moment just as it is. Ajahn Sumedha calls this the Buddha knowing the Dharma. And when I first heard that, I didn't quite get it because I was going, well, what does he mean, the Buddha knowing the Dharma? Because he said it over and over again in this one particular retreat. And so I reflected on it for a long period of time in my own practice. I would go, So is this the Buddha knowing the Dharma? And in time, I came to realize this is what he means. That when we're fully present in this moment, we're the Buddha knowing the Dharma. There's layers of it. First is this layer of being able to bear the suffering, to be present for it. And then being more fully present and being able to see its cause And to know that cause, as the second noble truth says, by letting loose of the cause. And then far more profound and uh, a bit uh, 
mysterious to us all, is this total cessation of suffering. And we all know the truth of the Eightfold Path. We've been practicing it this time. In movement, we come to this stillness. We align, we ground ourselves in this groundless ground of the stillness, of the emptiness. So, um, many different traditions have different ways of trying to stop the movement of our mind so that we can feel the stillness. So, koan practice. It frustrates the mind to stop it for a moment so that it can break out in the Zen tradition. The jhana practice that we do in our tradition, from my view, that is one of the fruits of it, is for some people there arises this breaking out of movement and there is this direct knowing of stillness. In the Raja Yoga tradition, and and the, the Kundalini arising, there is a point of stillness that comes. In the Pantajali's to teaching, there is this uh, moment of which the, it's called the seedless moment of which there is this emptiness that's there. In the Christian tradition, Saint John of the Cross, when he had his night of enlightenment, one would think that he would be describing angels blowing horns and being met at the pearly gates or something. But what he actually wrote in his journal, and we know this because this journal still exists. It's in a museum in Spain. What he wrote was, nada, nada, nada. The stillness, that emptiness. And it was profound and full and complete. So mysterious, this stillness. We don't get to choose knowing the stillness. We just create conditions and we notice it as much as we know it. It infuses our practice as much as it infuses it. It's always there. and It's always uh, uh, participating with us in this. Sometimes we uh, come to this through this open heart. So it's the, as Diana was talking about last night, just uh, all is love, all is love. And we get there through this open heart. And that open heart has us free of desire. We're loving in what's referred to as agape, this love that has no agenda. It is open, it's available. Not some unique thing in terms of Buddhism, It's in all the traditions in some way. This kind of selflessness that's just there. So, love is the cause and end of movement. But not movement itself. That's that full openness into love. As we start to be informed by this, And on that first night when we were talking about the nobility of silence, that's why the silence is so noble, so golden. It creates the condition, or helps create the conditions, where we start to feel the stillness. The stillness in our body, the stillness that's present in this whole manifestation in space-time, and the stillness in our own minds. 
So we, we come to this, you know, through this practice in this way. And we can start to, as we get this little taste of this, oh, yeah, there is something to this. I know what he's talking about. Or maybe next month, there's a moment when you're out in nature and everything's just still. And you remember. That's what that guy was talking about. It becomes a kind of aspiration for us and therefore a motivation in our practice to access this place where there is no movement, no grabbing, no pushing away, no movement. So an aspiration. Or it can be a kind of intellectual context for us. That yes, there is some uh, uh, intellectual blueprint or uh, architectural design to the way we're practicing. It's not just this kind of sit and hope something happens. But there is a map, there is a place, there is a destination. This place of no movement, of no grasping. Or it can be a kind of koan. What is stillness to me? What is the Buddha knowing the Dhamma? What does that mean to me? Not what it means to someone in in your sitting group, but what it means to you. Not to figure it out, but to live the question, to live the mystery of the question and see what comes from living the question. These are not uh, subtle practices I'm talking about tonight. But our practices in its fullness need not be reduced down to just what we all understand. Practice is opening to our edge of our practice, to going beyond what we know. Yes, I get this stuff about how I be mindful and how I come back to the breath. That's wonderful that we have that. But that's a a limitation if we think that's all of practice. Part of our practice is living in the unknown, being beyond our comfort zone. Don't know mine. What does he mean about this? Don't know. But I have felt stillness. So what does he mean? Don't know. A very wonderful place to be. And having this interest in this, this awareness, this cultivating of the awareness of stillness gives us a kind of faith because we have tasted it. We know this fourth moment, a kind of nowness that's different than ordinary time. And having known that, that's a little bit of faith that we can rely on. It keeps us going. It's also true that when we open to the mystery, we pop out of this wanting mind, this grasping mind. It's too big for us. So we get outside of our ego's reference points. And even for a little while of that is so, so useful. We refer to it often here as don't know mind, which came out of the Korean tradition, I've, uh, as far as I know. But don't know mind. Or beginner's mind, as I read Suzuki Roshi's quote the other night. Don't know mind, beginner's mind. Open, fresh, just this moment. When I took you through the exercise of the biospace suit, that was a way 
of inviting you to move beyond what Jack was referring to as, as the, uh, the food body or the body of pain as he referred to it. We get so lodged into our ordinary thinking, our ordinary perception, that even though we're doing these practices, sometimes we forget to step into the unknown, to leave the food body, to leave the body of pain, and to see this manifestation of this body, this manifestation even of this mind, with beginner's eyes, as new. What's this? Don't know. Don't know. So practically speaking, when we're sitting, we can notice the stillness. We can notice the stillness in the room. We can notice if our body is still. We can notice if the mind is still. We can notice the relationship of stillness and sound. One of the practices that Ajahn Sumedho teaches that he came upon himself in his own life experience, he refers to as the sound of silence, in which there is within this silence a kind of sound. It's, uh, in India, it's referred to as Nadi Yogi. So sometimes listening to, uh, as Diana was taught us a few days ago, listening to sound arise and pass. Yes, you can listen to sound arising and passing, but you can also listen to the silence from which it arises and returns. Or in your own inner quiet, you may hear this sound, this sound of silence, as Ajahn Sumedho refers to it. So we can notice the stillness in many ways, and we can start to attune to it. We can be more open to it, less habituated towards moving towards something or moving away from something. That is desire. Just here, just now. We can take vows when we're practicing. I won't move my body for the next two minutes. Or we can experiment and we can say, okay, you know, this leg's killing me. You know, it's, it's gone to sleep. It's gone to sleep all the way down. I may be doing something terrible to myself. I may lose my leg over this. I have to move. I have to move. Well, do I have to move this moment? No. Well, how about this moment? No. Well, how about this moment? No. We stayed with the stillness. We broke the habit of our addiction to movement. We're so addicted. We so assume that we have to participate in movement. The movement happens in the stillness without our doing anything. You will breathe. You can't stop breathing. If you try, you will pass out. Your brain will just shut down and allow you to start breathing again. The next moment will come without your having to do anything. And I'm going to prove it to you just now. (laughs) So I want you to... Try to stop this next moment from happening. Try, close your eyes. Stop for a moment. Did it happen? All right. So 
say that I was, I just, it, it may happen, but I'm not going to do anything. It, maybe it won't happen if I just don't do anything. I'm just not going to do anything. Did the next moment happen? The moment to moment unfolds without a me or mine. We do not have to be addicted to the movement. The movement arises in the stillness and we can know it as such. When Julie was taking us through opening to space this morning, she made reference once again to this idea of relaxed attention. To uh, more open to stillness, that uh, quality of relaxed attention is quite useful. So we're not grabbing stillness. You know, we're not trying to move into stillness. We're settling back. We're just noticing with this kind of relaxedness. Yeah, there's stillness in this room. And my body's still right now. The breath is actually arising in stillness. Gets to be quite a luminous feeling, this, this kind of uh, extra awareness, because we become, we just sort of evolve or fall into that fourth moment. We're in time, but not limited by time. In time, but not of time. We're there in our ego minds, but we're not limited to that ego mind. In my experience of working with yogis and in my own practice, I have found all of this to be of great benefit. This interrupting of movement, even just short periods of time, breaking this habit of mind to move, to just stay. It changes the momentum. So in your daily life, when you've got all this stimulation, you may not realize how addicted you are to moving either towards it or away from it. But as you start to cultivate the stillness, you're just still. So uh, someone says something, your mind doesn't move. It doesn't move. It doesn't grasp hold of it. It doesn't react against it or react for it. It arises. You recognize it. It's known. But there's no grasping around it. In that moment, you're the Buddha knowing the Dharma at work or at home or in traffic or talking on the phone. There's a stillness when you're there on the phone. Just listen to it sometimes. You're talking. The other person is talking. But there's also a stillness. One way to notice that is just listen to the breath of the person on the phone. And then notice that there's a stillness from which that breath arises. Try it and see. So as you get uh, more into this, the nervous system drops down a notch. It's, it's less reactive because you're not feeding it anymore. At least, again, this is my experience. And there develops these new habits in relation to cognition. With this felt sense of it, you're there in the mystery. So you're in traffic, and you stop at a red light. And just for a moment, you notice that you're stopped. 
you're stopped. You're in the mystery of life. You're doing the most mundane thing that may be for you one of the more frustrating things of your life. And yet, in that moment, it's a moment of the Dharma. You're in the mystery. The Dharma's not someplace just here in this hall or out in nature. It's there in traffic. It's that moment with the difficult person. It's that moment of listening to the news when you're hearing things that are so distressful in the news or in politics. It's everywhere. It's everywhere. And that stillness is everywhere if we choose to access it. So, I'd like to go back to the uh, Eliot to uh, go back to movement in love. Repeating what we heard before. Desire itself is movement, not in itself desirable. Love is itself unmoving, only the cause and end of movement. Timeless. Timeless. And undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. For love to exist in time, it requires movement. It requires movement. For you to love another person, for you to love that baby, your child, to love this earth, it requires movement. Because in time, everything requires movement. This is the great paradox. Love itself is unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. That stillness, that pure awareness has no beginning, has no end, is not in time, is not moving. But our lives are movement. Our lives, if we choose to make it, as Diana was saying last night, can be from that love, from that bodhicitta, from that Buddha nature, the cause and end of movement. As we move from this space of selflessness, of this agape love, we end up back in this selflessness, this, this love that is not based on grasping, not based on desire. And we can do this in the midst of our desires. We don't have to be something other than we are. We infuse it, this moment, with our deeper intent. We're embodied in our intent from our deepest value of caring, of not causing harm, of really of all the precepts that we took as a vow here. Love itself is unmoving, only the cause and end of movement, timeless and undesiring, except in the aspect of time, caught in the form of limitation between unbeing and being. Now he moves into life, sudden in a shaft of sunlight, even while the dust moves. There rises the hidden laughter of children in the foliage. Quick, now, here, now, always, 
ridiculous the waste, sad time, stretching before and after. Ridiculous the waste, sad time, stretching before and after. This is the call to be present in your life. With our practicing mindfulness, we learn how to be present in just this moment, to be fully present with all the Brahma-Viharas, the loving kindness, the compassion, the equanimity, the sympathetic joy. That's love manifest in time, those Brahma-Viharas. They're referred to as the heavenly abode. The heavenly abode. We are being like a Buddha when our moment is infused with one of those four. Mindfulness, as Diana was saying last night, is infused with all of these. Mindfulness brings it to us. And from that, we have the clear comprehension to meet our lives with all of the challenges, to balance what we want with what someone else wants, to be fair, to know what's enough, to be able to love ourselves and to love another, to forgive ourselves and to forgive another. This is the opportunity of the Buddha knowing the Dharma in time, in time. When we become full Buddhas, we'll be out of time, not of time anymore at all, not of a whole different order. But right now, we can manifest our Buddha nature. So close your eyes for a moment. Notice the stillness in the room. Make it your object of attention. Shift attention to the stillness of your body. Make it your object. And now invite the mind itself to just be still, empty. the groundless ground. So in a talk like this, we let the words fall into silence.
Let the thoughts fall into silence. Keep the felt experience. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.